Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. Today on the show, a special episode of The Nose, on which we explore the dark, oily stain left on civilization by the comic genius of David Letterman. We understand the folly of trying to do one of our usual comic introductions in the shadow of a comedy legend, so we ask instead that you come together with us in a moment of silence as we drop a watermelon from a five-story building. Thank you, Dave. And now, Colin McEnroe. So many things uh, that people try to do these days, as Jason Zinneman, one of our guests today, uh, pointed out earlier this week, have already been done by David Letterman, including uh, throwing a watermelon off a five-story building. Uh, And so many things that people do now also just sort of bear the imprint of David Letterman. I mean, I actually, as I started to think about it, could notice three or four things about this show, which is about as far removed from a late-night comedy talk show, as one could imagine, that bear certain Letterman fingerprints that just wouldn't be done quite the same way. So we really wanted to devote an entire show to David Letterman as he comes to the end of this uh, glorious uh, late-night career. And we've got fabulous guests for you today. A little bit later, uh, you're going to meet one of the many young men in America who just was warped beyond all recognition forever uh, by watching David Letterman uh, and then became... Uh, the closest thing he could. Mike Royce is a television writer and producer who is a showrunner on sitcoms like Everybody Loves Raymond, uh, Lucky Louie, and Men of a Certain Age. He's coming up a little bit later. Right now, uh, in the studio in New York, we have Jason Zinneman, who writes the on-comedy column for the New York Times. He's working on a book about David Letterman to be published this year. Also with him, Randy Cohen, who wrote for uh, Late Night with David Letterman from 1984 to 1990. Also wrote the ethics column for the New York Times. He's the host of Person, Place, Thing on Northeast Public Radio. Also, he and uh, Jason were having a fascinating conversation uh, getting as we were getting ready for the show. We're releasing that as a podcast as well, too. I don't know if that's ethical <laughs> or not, but, um, uh, you know, your lawyers can talk to our lawyers, I guess. So, first of all, welcome to the show, both of you. I'm just, uh, I couldn't imagine two better guests. I mean, these are you're the guys we would have wanted to have. Um you know, I, if those other guys hadn't canceled, yeah, exactly. Uh, if if uh, things had worked out with Jaja, you wouldn't be on. Um, so um, I, I guess I'm. I'd Would like you to... have made that Jaja reference if if you didn't watch Letterman? No, absolutely not. I actually watched earlier today. When, I mean, this has been a joy to study for, to get ready for, and I actually did watch clips of him taking Jaja to fast food restaurants in in L.A. Uh, And, uh, you know, I I wanted to maybe just start with the maybe lofty semi-Shakespearean notion that I don't know if there have been seven ages of Letterman, but there this is a guy, this is a a television presence who I think really has gone through a progression and has gone through some different iterations of, of his persona. But I think it is important to start with that first one. And to me, the first one, and, and this really was, I think, alluded to uh, in your piece earlier this week, Jason, was this kind of Midwestern mainstream Dadaist, this guy who really, you know, assisted by a bunch of writers, including Randy, started to really kind of tear apart ideas about entertainment and content and form and, and experimenting with ideas like, you know, could it just be funny 
to throw things off a building or to have a chimpanzee wearing uh, a, a camera and becoming a monkey cam. I mean, these are kind of Dadaist concepts. Um, so maybe, Randy, I'll start with you. Did you think of it that way when you guys were doing it or were you just trying to do the funniest show you could? Um, the latter. I mean, the, the number of times Dada was mentioned in the writer's room, I, I actually kept notes on that, and it turns out to be zero. Uh, a lot of, I think, the, the early versions of, of the show stemmed from the necessity of Dave distinguishing himself from the Carson show, mm. that um, the show was going to be in New York, not in Los Angeles. It was going to have a different kind of guest. Um, Carson explicitly forbade Dave from doing a, a long opening monologue. Uh, and, and Dave and, and uh, Meryl Marco especially were talking about, well, what kind of pieces could they do that were um, unlike Johnny? And so, Jason, but what came out of that funnel somehow really was this, I mean, it, it often felt like kind of anti-television television. Yeah, you know, it's it's to, to the point about Dada, in the second week, the cold open of one of the shows, and this is when hardly anyone knew what Late Night was, was one of William Wegman's dogs <laughs> licking a uh, a glass of milk for a minute, just a minute. That's the, you, you, you turn the TV on to see a talk show and you see a dog licking a glass of milk for a minute. It goes to the opening – uh, the intro, the show starts with a monologue, zero explanation of what happened until in the last 20 minutes of the show, or maybe it's 30 minutes, William Wegman's a guest. Uh, and they do talk about surrealism for a question or two, believe it or not. I mean, as Randy pointed out, Meryl Marco, who really created the show with Dave Letterman, uh, was a an art student and was uh, uh, an art, art teacher and was very conversant on this. And uh, so, so there, there, you know, one of the things that... Um, I think I, I've come to believe in working on a book on Letterman. I think you know, you're absolutely right that there are many, many different uh, late Letterman shows, uh, and there's many different phases of Letterman, um, which is not true of, of many uh, of these uh, comedians. In fact, I would say the when he started on Late Night, he was on about his fourth incarnation. Um, but uh, it's a mistake, I think, to view it only through Letterman. Um, there was. Uh, a, a writing staff which was very influential, including Randy, who was tremendously important. Um, there was Meryl Marco. There was uh, his radio past. There was there's all there, there was Carson. There was Steve Allen. There, there was all sorts of things that were going on. There was the network. What, what was possible? Um, and uh, a lot of the changes from one period to the next weren't sort of conscious choices. They were a response to circumstance, which I guess is you know, building on what Randy is saying, but with more long-windedly. Well, no, more yeah, eloquently. Uh, uh, the other thing about, but about that William Wagman called opening, um, right. the dog I believe was named Man Ray, just so we give the dog proper credit because <laughs> Dave, you know, likes animals. Uh, as much as Merrill's art school background, Dave and Merrill just like dogs. That's absolutely right. Uh, and, and so it will all be translated through that way. I mean, they weren't going to do that piece with cats. There were very few cats on the show. The show is not a cat-friendly <laughs> show. Uh, Merrill did a, a piece early on called uh, uh, Dog Poetry. It, it, it was the, the first time I thought I would have a heart attack from laughing, and I can't, I can't explain why. It's just um, a do her dog barking at squirrels, her and Dave's dog, I guess, at their house, and, and Meryl having subtitles for what the dog is saying. That right. was so brilliant. I, it's impossible to convey. You have to go watch. You should all, like, turn off your radios right now for just three minutes, find it on YouTube, and, and watch um, dog poetry. Cause do not, do she's not do really that. fun. Do not well, listen to that. Or, those those short films with my, my dog Bob was what they call yeah, it, the, yeah. uh, which are you know basically a short film from the point of view of a dog. And, yeah, I mean you. Be, I think you could get away with a lot of this stuff 
if it was if it involved a dog, right? Yes. And Dave liked dogs. Dave liked dogs, right? And that and that it's there's a it's easy to kind of over intellectualize this stuff, but there's sort of the the the, the 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 midway point between an interesting idea and something that he felt comfortable with was where a lot of the great stuff happened. Yes, uh, and there's one other I think aspect to the early show that that bears mentioning, which is that we were on very very late. We were on at 12:30. Most people didn't have VCRs then. I didn't have a VCR then. Uh, and the budget was very, very low. And, and we were marginal. No one cared. Uh, no one at NBC cared what we do. And a wily veteran of the show, I think it was Gerard Mulligan, one of the writers, so I'm not sure, took me aside once early on and said, here's what the show is about. Um, people will leave their television set on whatever channel they were on. When they, they, they turn it off at night, that's where they'll leave it in the morning. Our job here is to increase the ratings of the Today Show by one point. And our budget was so low. If we could do that, NBC was happy. And, and that just having no one's watching our show, no one, no one at NBC cared about our show. <laughs> but, our, and, and that was awfully liberating. But see, I think that uh, is also filtered through your point of view, right? Which is interesting because if it looked at with some perspective, a huge number of people were watching relative to who watches TV at 1230 today. That one of the reasons I think this is such an important event, Letterman leaving, is besides the fact that Letterman was, was brilliant and he did all this innovative stuff, is that we don't make late night stars, we don't make comedians as big as we used to. Um, the culture is much more fragmented. So if you were at 1230 at night and you liked kind of offbeat humor, you didn't have many options. You watched Letterman, maybe you saw a midnight movie, um, but that was it. Now you've got a thousand YouTube channels there aren't, there aren't these galvanizing figures that can kind of transcend and kind of de- define a zeitgeist, which Letterman did in the 80s. Um, so you're right. Relative to Carson, very few people watched it. But there were so many kids like me watching the, the work you guys were doing and think and, – and that was our only option. Yes, it's true. Uh, we had cornered the market. And, and, uh, but we were concerned that a lot of the people watching the show were never counted in the Nielsen ratings. And there, there were several groups that we considered. One was uh, prison inmates. We <laughs> thought there were we, – I mean, serious discussions were had between our producers and, and NBC and the Nielsen's that NBC should really increase our budget because we're getting a lot of prisoners watching. We're getting a lot of uh, kids in college dorms. Nielsen didn't chart them. And um, uh, people in emergency rooms at hospitals. Those three groups we, we thought of as our uncounted audience. <laughs> you know, it seems to me that part of the um, excitement of particularly that, that first decade there was the tension that was going on between a writing staff or a, a production team that really wanted to create this very innovative, mold-breaking comedy. Just do things that things that things that have never been done before. And we can even talk about some of the things that you didn't quite manage to do. I think Randy will have to tell the underwater uh, show at some point the story of the uh, the underwater show. So there's that, never see, yeah. and and then there's this. Um, bumping up against that is the the vibe of the show is, you know, television isn't really good and primetime television isn't really very good. And a lot of these mass market movies aren't really very good either. Nothing is really as good as it should be. Um, and and we don't mind saying that. And nobody else seems to want to say it. Um, but we don't mind saying it. And we're on at this strange time of night. And we and, and there's kind of a joke about the show all the time. Right. That 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 the expectations of the show are never quite met either. Um, and it, it's it's interesting that you could sustain both things. The show's unbelievably creative and innovative and also disdainful of itself and everything around it. I mean, does that make any sense, Randy? 
Yes, that I, I think if the show was about anything, and I think when when it was good, it was. Um, it offered a critique of uh, popular culture, in, in particular, a, a critique of mainstreamed American television, primetime television. And, and what, what what I thought Dave's ethos was is uh, your childhood has been bought and sold for cash, and, and you're being fed a steady diet of crap. And, and our job is to offer a critique of that crap. Jason, how old were you when you were watching this show, when you first started watching it? I was probably like seven or eight. Well, now uh, I feel really old. But, the, uh, but, uh, but I mean, it's interesting, this, this point, because this is one of these things. There's a lot of things about uh, Letterman back then, which you see in today's shows um, in that age really well. But the context of the show is completely different, and you, it's unimaginable today. Like what you brought up, I, w- I would argue there was two premises that you Letterman began with, which is that TV is crap and New York is this crime-riddled hellhole. <laughs> and so many of the jokes took that for granted. If you, if you limit now, look at today. TV is in this golden age where it has more respect than it knows what to do with. I mean, every show is, the great, is better than The Godfather now, every, you know, every prestige show. So the, all those TV are crap jokes don't make, don't make sense in today's context. And New York is a you know, Disney-fied, crime-free you know, playland for the rich. It's, uh, it's, uh, so, so the context has been, is completely different. Um, and yet Letterman is still on the air. And, he's still, uh, and so you know, he couldn't uh, – on one level, he couldn't stay the same. Yeah, and I, 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 I want to come. The, I want it's a it's a great point, and I want to come back to it. Yeah, Randy, were you going to say something in response? Well, I, I'd say the the other change that that I think you can't overstate the importance of that part of that shift was um, Meryl leaving the show. Mm-hmm. Uh, in some ways, I felt Dave now at eleven thirty when he has total freedom and everyone loves him as well they should. Uh, he's doing just the kind of show he wants, and, and it's a little more mainstream and, and slightly more. Carsony. Um, Merrill was a, a tireless champion of the kind of pieces we were talking about earlier. And, and when she left the show in the late 80s, there was no one who could walk into Dave's office or argue with him in the car on the way home and say, we should do this piece. I, I think they drove each other crazy. She never let up. Um, and, and Merrill was a sort of backdoor. If, if Dave had turned down one of your pieces, you could go talk to Merrill. And she would often like it. And she would hector Dave about it later that night. <laughs> well, and, and actually, there's there's an interesting uh, thing in New York Magazine this week about uh, various writers talking about rejected pieces, uh, things that didn't get on the air. And Letterman uh, does a little gloss on each of them. And he kind of says that, too. At one point, he says, you know, one of the tragedies here was that nobody could ever really say no to me. So, uh, you know, I, I could actually my bad ideas would actually really get on the air and, and no one could stop me. You know, I just want to just pause about this thing about childhood, too, and about I think in particular boyhood. Um, one of the things that I, I think the show does explore kind of gloriously is 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 our boyish thoughts. And and for me, um, I'm a little closer in age to Randy. So when I was a kid, when I first started reading Mad Magazine, Mad Magazine had a similar role. It said, you know what? Advertisements are not true. A lot of the stuff that you're looking at is crap, you know, and in particular, advertising is false. And, you know, in 1961, I mean, as a kid, I hadn't really thought maybe that they were lying to me. And and I think the early Letterman show really did a lot with that. I mean, not just at that level, but also just the thing. I'll give you an example. Um, I just rewatched a clip of him wearing a magnet suit. And so he's got this suit of magnets and Paul's throwing silverware at him and he's making store cans stick to him. And then at the end, he kind of crawls up on a refrigerator and becomes a refrigerator magnet. And 
you know, it's the kind of thing that a bunch of kids would think of maybe doing. And he really explores that kind of numbing space in between a really great idea and its execution, which is never quite as good. You know, there's like his own crestfallenness that it's not as much fun as he thought it was going to be. And it's not as funny as he thought it was going to be. Is He just wears that in such an interesting way. I'd, go ahead and respond to that. I think you're I think you're right. I think it's why, for instance, in the, the next decade, Letterman loved and clearly loved on a show a Beavis and Butthead. I mean that Beavis and Butthead in the nineties sort of tapped into that the the, the boyish, you know, the, the the love of the kind of pointless destruction, you know, <laughs> the uh the uh the, the 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 proud stupidity. I mean I mean I mean I think the 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 genius of, of Letterman was the riding this line between dumb and smart. Um, and you know the, the the throwing things off buildings is and just seeing what happens when you do that or, or uh, crushing something with a um, the hydraulic press yeah the hydraulic steamroller the steamroller steam uh, I did one where we, we we got some railroad right away and, and we could run a locomotive into stuff it, it was a show where you could say could I get a locomotive please and they'd go what kind yeah and that's what you, I mean I remember as a kid you know. Take, uh, taking paper airplanes and throwing it out my window, setting it on fire, which is incredibly dangerous, by the way. Don't do that. Uh, and, and throwing it out the window and seeing what happens, seeing what destruction happens. And I think Letterman's show did, did tap into that. Yeah, yeah. And, and not to parse this too finely, but um, I didn't see it as a line between the two. Um, when I liked the show, it seemed multi-layered, that, that you could see those pieces as uh, uh, cartoon violence done live. Um, that's just like something a 12-year-old boy would want to do. It's just cool to blow stuff up. Uh, you could also see it as uh, the destruction of particularly culturally evocative objects. And, and enormous thought went into, um, th- you know, this is my job. I thought, I'm a writer. Um, no deft <laughs> use of language here. It's deciding, well, is, is running a freight train into fluorescent tubes, is the fluorescent tube the right <laughs> thing? And, and should they be 60 watts or 100? Which, which really gets at something about the culture. A boombox? Is it too late for that? And, and that discussion, it's, it's the kind of attention, I think, not to be too highfalutin, but that a novelist would put into those details. And that Dave cared about those details um, was really important to the show. And he did obsessively. Letterman said in the New York Magazine piece that uh, George Meyer had, he thought, the most brilliant idea that anybody ever came up with, which was to have a humidifier and a dehumidifier battle during the show. Uh, yeah. To see which one yeah, would be Yeah, I, I like that it was compl- – and so untellable. There was nothing to see. I mean you could have had to take – there were these two doors. You didn't even know. You had no real way of knowing they were even turned on. Um, that, but that, it was just – George Meyer I think was also unbelievably brilliant You know, and went on to make The Simpsons what it is in my opinion as much as anybody. Well, you know um, – uh, just to sort of talk a little bit more about that tension between the show's vast ambitions and its incredible contempt for for the medium of television at the same time. Maybe, maybe it is worth mentioning, particularly in the area of kind of experiments that didn't quite get off the launching pad or dive off the boat, that you really did want to do a Letterman show underwater, right? Oh, yeah. And Dave was very sympathetic, at least to trying it out. It was I worked with it. I think I believe it was with a writer named Matt Wickline. I don't know. It's memory is very hazy. It's Matt Wickline. Wasn't wasn't a Matt one. Um, and and um, so, Dave, you, you know, you write your ideas up as kind of a, a one sheet. You know, here's the general idea. Here's some specifics that might happen during the show. Dave approves it. And then for the next couple of months, our job was to travel up and down the East Coast scouting aquariums. Um, and it was the one right near your town. Mystic, it was, uh, what's mystic, it? mystic. Yes. 
It was perfect because uh, there were, there were kind of bleachers, as I recall, right at, that come down to the water level. <laughs> and the and, and the other thing that drove this was we had read about a uh, an unbelievably beautiful diving helmet that was uh, a glass sphere. There was no metal in it. It was like the way a little kid would imagine a space helmet. So that and it had great audio. So it, you could hear Dave talk to the guests. You could hear TV quality audio when, when, when Dave was saying something funny. Uh, so the idea was he'd come out in this diving suit with a helmet under his arms, do his opening remarks to the audience there, then descend, put the helmet on and descend into the water where the set would be underwater. And at, at Mystic, then, there, there's glass windows. There's a glass wall at, at that level, at the lower level, the underwater level, where you could shoot this. So so we found the aquarium. Um, we went to a Holiday Inn swimming pool in Fort Lee, um, where Dave worked. We, we had these French diving guys that worked for Cousteau come. They were training Dave in the new helmet. Um, the camera crew was there. Um, they were working underwater. I, I, Hal Gurney, our director, was working underwater with these guys. Um, <laughs> It was it was fantastic. The talent department was instructed to start looking for A-level guests who were scuba trained. Um, and then at a certain point, Dave pulled the plug on it. And, and, and his, his reason was, I think, sound. He felt that all this equipment had become too cumbersome. And, and he, he's very agile. He's very light on his – he's kind of Fred Astaire-like. Mm. Uh, and that this equipment would weight him down too much, and he would be unable to do his essential job, which is to be a verbally funny guy. And I think he had a point. Although it was disappointing at the time, but but it wasn't nuts. Right. You know, uh, speaking of that agility, that Fred Astaire-like quality, uh, Jason Zinneman, as a young man growing up under the spell of Letterman, I mean, you had a condition that was so pervasive, it could have wound up in the DSM, you know, sort of chronic Letterman over-influence disorder. There's this whole generation of young guys and some girls who, I mean, they really... It was hard not to want to be Letterman, right? I mean, he if you couldn't be the football quarterback, if you couldn't be a couple of other like hyper-ascendant life forms, it would be just so great to embody that take. I mean, how, how hypnotic was the Letterman spell for you? Oh, it was it was total. I mean, if you if you saw me in, you know, uh, fourth or fifth grade, I would I would end jokes by with the slashing movement of my arm as if I was signaling to Paul a rim shot uh, with <laughs> even though there was no band uh, in my you know high school hallway or elementary school hallway. Um, and, uh, you know, the, uh, the 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 tone of voice, the delivery, it was completely stolen uh, wholesale. And I, and I think you know I've thought about this a lot. There was something about watching uh, his show. One, that, that you had the feel of a kind of inside joke. You were in on an inside joke if you watch it often enough. And the other thing which I think is very strange about that period, because Letterman, you know, is a, is a guy from uh, Ball State from Indiana. But to a, a kid growing up in Washington, D.C., he represented uh, cool, New York cool. And it was a particular – in retrospect, when you think of all the varieties of New York cool there are, it was a particularly accessible kind of New York cool. Um, you know, he, he, was, he was New York cool but of a kind you know, that you could sort of aspire to be like, which was not the case um, for a lot of other kinds. Um, you know, I loved uh, 
you know, Bob Dylan as a kid who's going to be his last musical guest. But, you know, I never thought I was going to be like Bob Dylan. Uh, or, you know, you see those old you know, photos of Dylan in the 60s. That's, that's clearly unreachable. Um, but, but Letterman, uh, and partially this is also his gift for his connection with, his, with the audience, um, he managed to uh, make you feel a little closer to this New York cool, which is a, which a you know, powerful thing. I think also, and this doesn't get talked about quite so much, I don't think, but, you know, everything that you say is true. There's something very entry level about Letterman. There's a sense anyway that he's not so Olympian, at least back in those days, not so Olympian and so far removed from us that we couldn't really share any DNA with him. And on the other hand, and I think that that's true in a way that maybe wasn't so true about Johnny Carson. Uh, on the other hand, you would see these women come in and, you know, as as shtick or whatever, you'd see Julia Roberts and Drew Barrymore would show her breast to him and Madonna would kind of hit on him and Sandra Bernhardt would have this complicated little sexual dance with him. I mean, that, it was also kind of interesting that way that he wasn't he wasn't the high school quarterback. He didn't look like that anyway. Um, and. And women, you know, really attractive women were kind of doing this interesting little dance with him. Yeah, no, I, and I think that's a, a good example of something that changed over the course of the 80s where that I think if you, if you see Letterman in the first couple of years, uh, you know, his affect is uh, – very repressed and and nervous by sex makes him nervous. You know, he famously walked out of an interview of with uh, Dr. Ruth when she brought up, I think it was a cucumber, it was oral sex with a cucumber, or, or using a cucumber as um, you know some pleasuring uh, <laughs> to pleasure yourself. He just walked out, and and a lot of the humor came from his fear of talking about sex, which is of course something that a young uh, kid could relate to. Um, and then I think later on. Um, you know, he, he with, the, with the things like with the Drew Barrymore and Julia Roberts, he became more kind of overtly flirtatious, and then it became it's, it's sort of like it's playing out your fantasy uh, that you that you're this guy who's who's not this you know who you can relate to, but is also having all these beautiful women come in and uh, flirt with. You know, we got to go to which, break which in a, a second. Dime, which is a yeah, we're going to go to a break in just a second here. But, but Randy, since Dr. Ruth just got mentioned, am I incorrect in remembering that Dr. Ruth became upset because she was there during the monkey cam? And it's one the, of the, the, the peak moments of my entire life. Go, go ahead. Um, quick, and quick certainly my life story. on the show. Yeah. So um, uh, this is monkey cam where, where the bit was uh, we put a, a small camera on, on a large monkey and the monkey is allowed to roam free in the studio during the show. I um, mean, it was the same kind of uh, pseudo-technological innovation that showed in a lot of um, um, our, our director, Hal Gurney, had done all kinds of, of cameras. I mean, it was the same aesthetic in the show, making a big deal about a small thing. That, that the, the, I think the meta joke was, well, all TV is a grotesque squandering of technological innovation. <laughs> and it also turns out to be this joke about Dave's ability to function during chaos, because as I think we've learned also in Connecticut, these are wild animals. <laughs> um, you can't rely on them. Um, and it's it's just allowed to wander around while Dave's trying to do his job. It's really distracting. Um, it became this you know perverse psychological experiment. Um, and the monkey um, also did a very very good job of shooting the show. It was something I hadn't anticipated uh, about the piece. That the next day, uh, one of our regular camera crew was angry.
angry at me. And he thought that what, I, what the piece was about was saying, a monkey can do your job. And that never even occurred to me. I liked our camera crew. And I like monkeys. I'm not getting in the middle of that fight. But, but um, it, it became a, a piece about, okay, so here's what, so the monkey's running around. Dr. Ruth is, is the lead guest. Uh, the monkey would wander over to Dave's desk, who, you know, crossing Dr. Ruth to, to pick up a mug of water that the monkey liked. There was a rope by the desk that the monkey could climb up and look down. And the monkey's extremely entertaining. The monkey's name was Zippy, by the way. We named the animals on the show. A very talented monkey. Um, And this is what Dr. Ruth said to Dave in the middle of all this. Don't look at the monkey, Dave. Look at me. Look at me. You know, that just seemed the vanity of all talk show guests was right there. That's what our show was about. Our show is about don't look at the monkey. Look at me. (laughs) All right. Well, that's a good break to go out on. We'll take a break. We'll come back after this. Say goodbye to David, the guy we laughed at from our beds. We've decided tonight, now comes the joke, we've decided tonight, (laughs) see all of that is the setup, here comes the joke. We're going to start our own top ten list, and tonight... I think we got a pretty good one. Tonight will be uh, late night's top ten words that almost rhyme with peas. Okay. Number ten, we have heats. Number nine is rice. Number eight is moss. Number seven, we have pies. Well, it's a little late. What what happened? We were going to score this whole thing for you. It was a little drum roll. Where now? I lost my place. Where were? We? Oh, number seven is five. Number number six is needs. Number five is lens. Number four is ice. Number three is kind of a surprise. Nurse. Number two, we're getting very close now. Is leaks. And the number one word that almost rhymes with peas, according to our poll. So that was the first ever top 10 list. Um, another example of uh, the Letterman Show conviction that the, the complete emptying out of a form can bring that form to its platon- platonic ideal. So there are all these top 10 lists uh, out there. Uh, and uh, well, anyway, we should let the guests tell the story. Let me tell you, tell you once again who the guests are. In just a second, we're going to be joined by Mike Royce. I know I've been promising him. I'm going to deliver him in just a second. Jason Zinneman's with us. He writes the On Comedy column for the New York Times, and he's been working on a book about David Letterman to be published next year. Randy Cohen wrote for the for Late Night with, with David Letterman from 1984 to 1990. He's the host of Person, Place, Thing on Northeast Public Radio. Um, so. You know, everybody has, every Letterman fan has his or her own idea about what the real, like the sort of the great signature Letterman thing is, or the thing that their own mind returns to a lot. For me, it's a a, a much less recurring idea, uh, a bit called, is this anything? And I bring it up all the time, and I I think about it myself when I'm just just actually thinking about, is this anything? Uh, But the top 10 list is really the thing that everybody knows. And so... um, First of all, Randy, I'm just going to say you are often um, credited with being the father of the top ten list. Yeah, not not entirely accurately, I should say. But um, it, it, a couple of years ago, when, uh, Regis interviewed Dave on TV, I think for CNN, 
And Regis said, well, where, did that, where does that crazy 10 best list come from, Dave? And, and, and Dave credited me. Um, and and I, I find it wise, you know, if, if that becomes the official story, why, why would you argue with your boss? Dave believes it was me. Uh, Merrill believes it was me. It was me. Um, I'll cut yeah. one thing because I've been reporting on this book for, you know, a year and change. And the origins of the top ten list have ch- – the, the reporting that I've had because I've talked to all the writers yeah. has changed like seven times. Yeah. I mean, yeah. And <laughs> it makes me – Steve O'Donnell, our, our unbelievably honest, kind, and brilliantly funny head writer, is absolutely certain it was him. No, no, that's changed. Has that changed? That's changed. Uh, but but what I like, I, I I'm not a postmodern guy. You know, I believe there are actual facts. Like something happened, uh, but that I like that now it may be unknowable. So flexible is memory. Uh, <laughs> we may ne- never actually know. And I can tell you how I remember, which is that I'd read a piece in Cosmo, and it was the ten sexiest men over sixty, which doesn't seem nearly as funny now as it did then. <laughs> uh, uh, and uh, uh, when you would get to work in the morning. You, we were sort of hanging out in the, in the uh, foyer, just in the little entryway, uh, and there were a bunch of the writers there. It's like any job. You're just sort of chit-chatting before work starts. A bunch of the writers, uh, Bob Morton, who was a segment producer at the time, um, and I, I was telling them about this thing I read, and, and, and we were just chatting. We weren't trying to work. Um, and I re- recall Morty saying, Bob Morton saying, oh, we should do something like that on the show. And he said it so quietly and so modestly because Morty wouldn't dare suggest to the writers what a piece would be. You know, it's a kind of humility on his part. Uh, and, and I, everybody's little, you know, went ding, eureka moment for everyone in the room. These were smart, funny guys. Um, and because I had, I think, read the Cosmo and, and had spoken the most about it, uh, um, I sort of was meant to take charge of it. But I, but I think Steve and Matt Wickline did, actually did the one you're describing. The Kenny assassination would be quicker to describe than the origin of the top ten list. <laughs> the, uh, but I, so I actually, I don't want to get in the middle of it. But I, I, I actually think that the, the most important is it doesn't really matter. No, it uh, doesn't. In fact, I would argue that of, of much more significance than who came up with the top ten list was the moment when the, which was fairly, fairly quickly after it was started. And uh, I think Randy can speak to this as, as well. When, when it shifted from being a kind of joke on list, you know, top ten things or, or a kind of abstract thing to a, uh, you know, ten punchlines, ten, ten punchlines which are generally topical about something topical. And that, that really hardened into an institution that stuck with the show for a long period of time. Right. Yeah, I mean, I that, that first agree. one, the one that we just heard, I mean, I think does confirm a point about Dadaism. If the list is 10 things that almost sound like peas and one of them is nurse, you know, you're really sort of trying to divorce language and content as much as you possibly can. But but I think, Jason, you're right. Eventually, the, the, the top 10 list became something else. It came, became, it seemed, it feels like it, it just became a focal point for comedy writing too, right? That the, the, I assume... Randy, that it became a thing where the writers on the show pooled their energies uh, to, to create this yes. list. And, and I want to endorse one, one other thing uh, Jason said is that a great thing about working there was there were, I don't remember ever there being a fight about credit for something. Mm. Uh, that it was so collegial, that it was so generous spirited. Uh, it was it made it a wonderful place to work. Um, and and it, it was Dave himself, I think, who, who began to value it as uh, 10 written jokes that he had all loaded up, ready to go. He could rely on at the beginning of the show every day. Also, as Jason said, often 
a good place for topical jokes. And uh, we, we, the two of us were talking to Gerard Mulligan, who was with the show. Pre, I mean, he was writing for Dave since 78, when Dave first uh, guest hosted The Tonight Show. Jerry did his whole career for Dave and pointed out Dave liked it because it was a place you could put a guest that you didn't actually want to book as a full guest. They didn't have enough interesting uh, stories to tell. Uh, but you could have them read the top ten, maybe a musician or an athlete whose work you admire but isn't, isn't really eloquent. Um, it was great for that, too. Last night, for the record, Al Pacino only read the numbers. Um, he just did 10. Very nice. Nine. Sure. He did that, just did that part. Um, all right. We do, uh, as promised, we can't just keep saying we have Mike Royce and then not delivering. Oh, like you could get Mike Royce. Yeah, I got Mike Royce. All right. Back off. Uh, Mike Royce is joining us right now. He's a television writer and producer who is a showrunner on sitcoms like Everybody Loves Raymond, Lucky Louie, and Men of a Certain Age. And, and Mike Royce, we've already talked a little bit about this, um, you know, this, this almost disorder that young men had in the 1980s. You know, this... Uh, non-treatable disorder of kind of David Letterman over-influence disorder. And and you were about as much in the grip of that as a human being could be, from what I can tell. Tell us about the spell cast by Letterman for you. <laughs> well, for sure. I mean, I became a comedian because of him. And, and uh, like some of the stuff uh, you were talking about earlier, I, you know, when I went on stage for the first time, I certainly thought I was him in my mind and uh, quickly found out that was wrong. And uh, my mannerisms, you know, it, it was funny when you played the top 10 list there, the first one, just his way of introducing the bit where he's saying this, this is not the joke yet. This is not the joke. This is the setup. He's, he's commenting on the whole thing. Mm-hmm. You know, that was how I started and how many of us started our comedy career. My, you know, of course, the problem was you you just it's all commenting. There's no actual material. Uh, so in the clubs, I was, you know, bombing. <laughs> and eventually I had to get material. But that whole approach, you know, that just became, that was my, that was how I talked. It, it, that was how you did comedy. And just, which was just go on and like have a couple of, you know, talk about what's happening instead of talking, actually just doing your material. And that sort of threaded its way through now, I think even through like alternate comedy, you know, alternative comedy and stuff like that. But my thing was, um, in the summer of, I believe, 1983, my friend Stu and I became super obsessed. Um, I mean, we had been we watched uh, as much as we could of the daytime show. We were already giant fans, and um, we decided that we wanted to try and get on the show. And we didn't have an act; we had no reason to be on the show whatsoever. Um, but we spent the entire summer making um, pictures, fake pictures of he and my friend Stu and myself. And, and cut out pictures of Dave. We just would crudely cut them out, put them against different backgrounds, like the three of us against, you know, a, a bunch of cars or on a beach or something like that. All Xerox, just crude Xeroxes. And we would send them just over and over to the show. Look at, and the, the basic theme being, how can you let down your best friends in the world? Don't you want to have us on the show? Don't you want it to be like old times, the three of us hanging out, you know? Um, and this went on, I mean, just... It was pictures and like we, we I think we did uh, we'd made like stickers and and it was a whole campaign to get you get your old friends back on the show and then I went to, I went to film school and I made a movie about it where I decided since the show had only sent us rejection letters um, we I made a film um, and it was the only film that ever really was any good in my in my college career uh it was a fake newsreel basically about 
how Stu and I had gotten on the show and America was, was hailing us as heroes. Um, and I just basically made my fantasy come true um, because I could. And, and um, you know, in some ways what you were doing, and maybe Randy can comment on this a little bit, was it, it was sort of playing into the worst possible trap, right? I mean, because at least the, the pose of the Letterman show was self-loathing, uh, and, you know, <laughs> adulation didn't really play very well, Randy. In other words, you know, the, it worked to be with people who either – didn't like Letterman or pretending not to like Letterman or some recent immigrant from Pakistan who was running a shop who'd never heard of Letterman. But adulation was almost the one thing that didn't really work all that well on the show. No, we didn't really need um, guests to be Dave-like because we had Dave being extremely Mm Dave-like. It it was someone uh, Dave could play off of. uh, If there's some tension, as we were talking about earlier, there could be sexual tension. Um, There could be a kind of hostility. I thought that Charles Grodin was particularly brilliant at that. That that construct, that character where where he and Dave were just thinking – Charles Grin's going to smack Dave at some point. <laughs> uh, th- that uh, w- when we would um, scout remotes, um, often th- the most important task, if it's a remote, like, oh, we'll go to Toy Fair and, and we'll visit these different different uh, toy merchants uh, with their new products. The most important thing you were doing was finding someone Dave would be very entertaining talking to. Uh, Dave had to, had to see something in the guy or like something about the guy, but the guy couldn't be like Dave because we already had that character. It had to be someone for that character to work with. Um, um, yeah, Mike, we should sort of fast forward to, to the fact that you did wind up being one of these guys. And this seems like a very, very pressure filled and unrewarding role. Uh, the the warm up guy, the guy who would come up, uh, come out and warm up a Letterman audience. Yeah. Tell us yeah, about I that. Filled in. I filled in for um, for the for the warm up guy at the time. And uh, yeah, it was both a dream come true and the most nerve wracking experience of my entire life. Um, I. He was the the guy was filling me in. It was Eddie Brill. He was filling me in on what happens. He's like, okay, well, you. And at this point, I'm an experienced stand-up comedian. I, I know what I'm doing. And um, he's telling me, okay, well, you introduce you you uh, you go on at five fifteen forty five, and you do uh, two minutes and fifteen seconds. Then you bring out Paul at five eighteen fifteen. I'm like, what? What's that whole? What are these numbers that you're telling me? And he said, well, it's timed out to the second. And there's a digital clock that only you can see. It's behind, like up in the balcony behind the audience. And each, there's like, you know, 10 things that need to happen at the exact time that they're supposed to happen. You know, you introduce Paul. Paul comes on and plays 45 seconds. Then he'll, he'll bring you back out. Then you bring Dave out. And it's everything was, you know. Um, and I just, I mean, I did a, I had done a ton of warm-up up to that point. That was I so, uh, um, uh, I mean, I was already nervous enough, and now I'm nervous. I'm going to be five seconds over to introduce Dave, you know. Um, and to your point about, uh, um, you know, sort of <laughs> adulation and not uh, – I remember uh, going and his uh, – I believe his assistant said um, uh, he likes to know how the audience is. That's the one thing I needed to tell him. And I just suddenly felt like what – I'm not, what am I supposed to say? I'm, I'm just some guy. What I can't, I'm going to tell him how his audience is, you know, uh, they could be, if, if I say they're great, then what am I, you know, how does, how does, what happens if they're not? And if I say that I'm, I'm going to tell David Letterman that his audience sucks, I don't think I can do that either. Um, so I go on and it's, 
of course, they're an amazing audience for anybody. You know, they just come there super pumped. So for just me, a fledgling, you know, just a regular stand-up comedian, it was an amazing experience. I do two and a half minutes. It's, it's fantastic. But I also don't want to say to him they're amazing because I don't want to overshoot. So I introduced when I finally got to shake his hand and hand him the microphone, and which was I'm already having an out-of-body experience when that's happening. I just tried to split the difference, and I'm like, they sound okay. And uh, he came out and did his little warm-up, and at the end of the warm-up, he said, well, folks, we're going to do the show anyway. And he left. (laughs) And you kind of understood at that moment he did not think they were okay. (laughs) And I felt like, oh, my God, I've completely blown this. Um, And later, I I guess the warm-up, you know, I, you stand in the wings by those doors, the double doors, and uh, kind of do a little, you know, lead a little bit of applause sometimes or whatever. At one point, something happened, and I go, you know, I'm applauding sort of with the audience, and I go, woo! And his assistant t- just put her hands on me and said, dude, dude, don't, we don't do that here. <laughs> All right, we're going to take a quick break here. We're going to come back with the final segment uh, on our All Letterman show after this. Who gives up? David Letterman. We've only got one segment left, but so far, is this anything? Today's show was produced by Jonathan McNichol and me, Kyone Wolf. Our intern is Kelsey Bissell. Greg Hill tweets for us at WNPR Colin, and the part of Bill Curry was played by Larry Bud Melman. For show pages, articles, and videos of the Faith Middleton Show staff eating a big, runny wheel of brie, visit our website, wnpr.org slash Colin. On Monday Scramble, we crush the weekend's news with a steamroller. And now... Back to Colin. All right. This is our, our David Letterman show and our show about David Letterman. Anyway, Jason Zinneman, who's writing a book about uh, David Letterman with us. Randy Cohen, uh, one of the writers for Late Night with David Letterman. And Mike Royce, a television writer and producer uh, and a showrunner who grew up on David Letterman. So we don't have very much time left. And I, I think uh, what little time we have maybe uh, does need to be focused uh, a bit on on these last few weeks. So Jason Zinneman, you know, at the beginning I said there have probably been seven ages uh, of Letterman or or five or nine or something. And and certainly, you know, here at the end of his run, um, you're kind of seeing a letterman that, who couldn't have existed in the 1980s, somebody who's not only this Olympian figure, but now is just receiving a kind of praise that he, he isn't even able to deflect, right? I mean, here in this farewell tour, I mean, if George Clooney wants to fawn all over him, Letterman has little choice but to take it. And he seems relatively comfortable taking it. He does. And I mean, I think the reason these last episodes, one of the reasons they're so powerful is that, you know, Letterman is not someone who's comfortable with sentimentality. He's not somebody who's, you know, this incredibly emotive figure who's goes for uh, these sort of cheap heartstrings. He's never been that guy. Um, So when he's in a position where he does express a little bit of emotion, it has a disproportionate amount of impact. Um, So you saw that after 9-11. You saw that after his heart surgery. Uh, These are – you know, few other talk show hosts could uh, have the kind of gravitas that he does uh, in those moments. And you're seeing that now I think – um, in these, uh, you know, in these moments when you see, you know, Adam Sandler, it's the best thing Adam Sandler's done in years is that song <laughs> and a Nathan Lane song and uh, things that are really and, and Letterman, as you as you point out rightly, I think is has, you know, is for the most part not shutting it down in, and uh, coming to terms with it. And, and it's quite moving and emotional, which is not a part of the 
uh, the Letterman show that you you normally think of, and I think that's really unexpected and 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 uh, and poignant. I mean, Randy Cohen, what does he look like to you now? I mean, do, do you sort of see? He never calls. You know, he never comes by the house. <laughs> But do you see that guy that you worked, the uncomfortable in his skin guy that you worked with in the 1980s? Um, yeah, I do, actually. Um, but but you see, all, all of who he was when I started working there um, refined through years of unbelievably excellent television comedy. Uh, what, what impresses me, too, is that writing for Dave w- was um, – Putting not so much writing in, in the sense of the deft use of language, but putting Dave in situations where could, he could be at his most Dave-like, that people watch the show for Dave's sensibility to experience it, to see the world Dave does. Well, after 33 years, that sensibility is pretty familiar to everyone. And, and yet comedy relies on surprise, even on the level of the joke. It's set up, oh, here's a surprising turn that is the punchline. Um, how Dave can continue to surprise with that familiar sensibility is incredibly impressive. Um, Mike Rice, we only have about a minute left, but you know something that Jason Zinneman said at the beginning, I think, is worth saying again, which is that you know so much of uh, the 1980s David Letterman was sort of based on the idea that television wasn't very good and that it didn't really deserve our respect and that he was amusingly disrespectful. Television's gotten a lot better, you know. I mean, television programming's gotten a lot better. Televisions themselves have gotten a lot better. There, you know, Don Draper had a sort of mildly intelligible piece of furniture that he watched. You know, now you have this very elaborate set. I mean, in a way, he's cre- the environment you're functioning in must seem very different from the environment of the Letterman you worshipped in the 1980s. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I remember watching Johnny Carson with my friends, too. And there were comedians on there. I just remember, listen, not to talk badly about uh, someone, but Shecky Green was on. And Shecky Green did a set, and all my friend and I did was make fun of Shecky Green. <laughs> Uh, you know, that's who Dave represented to me. He's looking at sort of the, you know, the the showbiz, uh, you know, fake stuff, and uh, and that's who what we were seeing through our eyes. And now that is a lot different. But you know what? The, the internet and everything else. There's plenty of fake stuff out there still to be. Uh, Sort of, uh, you, can, you can still find things worthy. You, know, right. you have to look in different places for things worthy of your contempt. Um, worthy of our of our admiration is Jonathan McNichol, who produced this whole show. Incredible work by Jonathan. We we're so lucky to have Jason and Randy and Mike on. Uh, we will be back on Monday with the scramble, and we will enjoy the final week of Letterman. Wait, before the show is over, I have a stupid human trick. I'm double-jointed in my elbows, so I just bend them, and I can lick my elbow. I can lick my elbow. Uh, uh, uh. I guess that's why they call it stupid human tricks. Medic. Mm.